as humans, our, our food kind of structures, our agricultural systems really rely on wild pollinators like bumblebees as well. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone whose favorite superhero is Rogue from X-Men, and that's Dr. Kaylee Byers. I just uh, really identify with Rogue, I think. But uh, to be fair, I don't know that much about the superhero landscape. Maybe it's not true, but you just feel like somebody, I think, who would know a lot about superheroes. Is that true? (laughs) Well, I mean, like specific superheroes, because, you know, the superhero world is not really the land that I live in. You know, I, you know, I lived in the Star Wars universe and the Star Trek universe comics that sort of connected to those worlds for sure but lately i've been getting into them a bit you know x-men certainly i really get into especially the comics the ideas of being a mutant and changing uh morphology and there's some some biology in there there's some science in there a bit and there's some crossover there with picard what superhero power do you think picard would have had well i mean obviously it's hard to picture uh patrick stewart as anyone else but Professor X. So <laughs> so obviously he's going to be reading your mind and, you know, because Patrick Stewart and Captain Picard are sexy, you know, like that thought. <laughs> so true. That he's reading my mind, you know, is, is kind of tantalizing. I kind of like that idea. I don't like it because it doesn't involve consent. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to move right along. Today... We're, we're going to be talking to a real-life science communication superhero. So I am very excited to introduce everyone to Peter Chaurier. Peter is a conservation biologist and PhD student at the University of Ottawa, where he studies the impacts of climate change and land use change on biodiversity in order to inform management and policy. Peter is also one of the most active science communicators I know. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. Living the dream. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. We are so excited for you to be here and to live this dream with you. So to start off, for folks who aren't familiar, you're a conservation biologist. Can you tell us what conservation biology is? Yeah, definitely. Um, So conservation biology broadly is focused on, I guess, two things. One is like figuring out Obviously, we know humans are doing a lot to the world around us. And so one big part of conservation biology is figuring out exactly what we're doing and exactly what impact it's having on the ecosystems and the wildlife around us. The second big thing that conservation biologists do is, is try to figure out ways to better do the things that we humans are doing while having a, a much more minimal impact on the world around us, too. So we're trying to uh, figure out why species are going extinct and hopefully not only prevent those extinctions, but recover populations. So for you, what does that work look like for you, for your for your thesis? Yeah, so I kind of, obviously there's a lot of flavors of any science field. There's so many flavors of it, right? And so in my, my flavor of conservation biology is macroecology. And so that just means big picture ecology. So I like looking at, I always hated picture, picking a favorite animal when I was younger. And so as a macroecologist, I get to study dozens of species of bumblebee, or I can go beyond and look at all vertebrates and look at the impacts that humans are having in a broad sense across countries and continents on these groups of species. So a lot of my work looks at that, looks at historic trends and a lot of different species, how they've been disappearing from some areas, colonizing new areas, and how those changes relate to things like climate change and historic patterns of human land use and stuff. So you're looking at 
groups of organisms over like large space in relation to like big world changes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the idea is to try to like distill those big picture patterns and, and lessons. And, you know, we're testing ideas of, of specific mechanisms and methods of impact and, and trying to distill those into general principles that we can, you know, use in more specific ways on the ground or uh, in kind of more policy contexts. So, Peter, you said that you, when you were young, you couldn't pick a favorite uh, species. There's so many of them to pick from. But you are working with bees right now. So are bees, you know, now your favorite species or have they sort of just become the ones you work, work the most with? Like, how do bees connect with uh, the work that you do on climate change? Yeah, bees are definitely now bumblebees are, are by far my favorite insects. I don't know if I'm ready to crown them the goat of all animals yet, but uh, <laughs> definitely of the insect kingdom. <laughs> Bumblebees are, they're just adorable, right? They're, they're cute. They're fuzzy. They're like, you know, literally bumbling around flower to flower. And so, you know, they play all these important things as pollinators. They're crucial for ecosystems, blah, 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 blah. That's obviously really critical too, but they're just so goddamn beautiful. And um, it's for me, like, you know, that's what really connects me to conservation is I love seeing these little beautiful things. And I hate the idea that they might not be there in, in 10 years or 15 years. So they kind of ground me to, to why I'm doing this research, why I'm, I'm doing science and, uh, and why I'm in this, this field. Well, maybe dig into that a bit more. Like, why are bees so integral? Because I think we all kind of inherently know and we have generally kind of hear about why bees are so important. But maybe get into some of the specifics uh, of why that is. Is it all about that honey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. So fun fact, you know, it's like a well known that honeybees make like huge amounts of honey, but they're really the only bees or among the only bees that make that much. Um, bumblebees will make like a little bit of honey. Other bees will, will make little bits like to go through rainy days, literally for rainy oh. days. But honeybees are the only bees that will like mass produce honey. It's like made through this process where they're basically like turning nectar into like a shelf stable product, something that will last them through the winter. And because honeybees are among the only groups of bees that need the colony to last through winters, where obviously there's no food to forage from, they're the only bees that have to like mass produce honey at that big scale. So there's no other nest that you could go into and, you know, just pull out honey like you would in a honeybee hive. Um, bumblebees are awesome. They like the little bits of honey and nectar that they bring back or like when they make honey and when they bring back nectar, they put it in these little like beautiful like honey pots or like nectar pots and it's it's incredible like when you look at the nest and you see these little it's like breaking into like an old archaeological dig site or something i imagine and you see all those old like greek vases it's similar when you look at a nest you see all these little pots everywhere so yeah fun fact everybody assumes that all bees make a lot of honey but of the twenty thousand bees that are around the world only a small proportion of them are honeybees and, and actually make honey. If all these other bees have like smaller pots of nectar, do they run risks from animals trying to get at those? Yeah, and I know like badgers are, are notorious for digging up not only honeybee hives, but, but bumblebee hives as well sometimes. And there are a couple of animals that will go after that. But the thing about, so honey is like processed and it stores for a long time. That's why honeybees do it so they can last through the winter on these food reserves. For bumblebees that don't, you know, their colonies die out in the winter. It's only the queen that, that lives through the winter. So they don't need to keep that food for a long time. So the nectar has, you know, I guess a quick expiration date. So it might be, I, this is complete speculation. I don't know, but I love to think of, you know, a badger bursting into a bumblebee colony and, uh, you know, eating all this expired uh, 
nectar that uh, the bees have just left. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty great. So maybe let's get back to the original question was maybe like connecting the the dots of bees and humans impact on them and climate change, the big issue that we're all trying to figure out here. Yeah, definitely. So I I mentioned and you touched on as well that, you know, bees are, are really important animals. Obviously they fall into the group of pollinators. And so Anywhere from 75 to 95% of flowering plants need help with their pollination. So they need help transferring pollen from one flower to another. And this is what every flowering plant needs to create fruit, to create seeds, to be able to make other plants. And so bees play a really crucial role of, of doing that transfer of pollen. So without them, you know, our, our natural ecosystems fall apart. All of them are, you know, a lot of them are, the foundation of them is different flowering plants from, um, you know, the wildflowers that we might know to even Things like, like trees, et cetera, other types of flowering plants, grasses. Some of those can pollinate on their own, but a lot of them need bees and other pollinators. And then, of course, as humans, our, our food kind of structures, our agricultural systems really rely on wild pollinators like bumblebees as well. Bumblebees especially are, are great for things like tomatoes, blueberries, uh, things that need buzz pollination, where they need really kind of fat pollinators to really physically shake the pollen off the flower. Um, so smaller pollinators like honeybees or butterflies, they can't, they can't dislodge the pollen from, from a lot of these crops. Um, so bumblebees are really important and in quite a few different ways, both for the, the wild ecosystems and kind of agricultural systems too. Did you call that buzz pollinators? Yeah, buzz pollination. Oh, well, that's a fucking thing <laughs> I've ever heard. It's, yeah, <laughs> the idea of it is, is even funnier. I think like it's literally that these flowers need to be just shook and they need just a fat fucking bee to land on them <laughs> and buzz at, at such a high frequency or at such like a hard you know level that it physically dislodges the pollen from the flower. That's what we call an FFB. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like this, this relationship can be really intricate, right? I remember in undergrad seeing a video of orchid bees, uh, a species of orchid bee that the orchid would attract the bee and the bee would fall in and then there was like a tiny hole for the bee to get out. And in the process of getting out, the orchid would put little pollen sacks on its back and it would allow it to fly away. Oh, hi there. Me again. Sort of from the future. When I was editing this podcast and I got to this part about the orchid bees, I thought, holy science. I did not tell this story well, and it's such a cool story. I felt the need to jump back in with a little more information. So the bees I mentioned are orchid bees. There are many different species. Some species are in the genus Euglossa. Go look them up. They are beautiful little bees. These bees are pollinators for orchids, and what they get from the orchid is scent compounds. So the male bees actually go around collecting fragrance compounds, which they use in their courtship rituals, like a fancy little cologne. And they don't just gather those scent compounds from orchids, but they also get them from things like tree resin and fungi. And so the bees are attracted to these scent compounds and they they go to gather them from the orchid. And in the example that I mentioned, I'm specifically talking about the bucket orchid. So they're an orchid and they've got this little bucket at the base. And as the bee is collecting these scent compounds, the orchid has this compound that it releases that's slippery and the bee can fall down into the bucket and it has nowhere else to escape but through this like tiny opening. And as they go through that opening, that's where the orchid attaches its pollen sacs. Uh, It 
it holds the bee there while it glues them on and uh, and then the bee can fly away and off to another flower. So intricate. It's also worth noting that because of this very specific relationship, any loss of these species of bees can also mean a loss of the flower in the future. So let's protect those bees. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, sometimes it can be super specialized. And it's funny as well, you know, speaking of co-evolution, the ways that some bumblebees have evolved to like completely not play by the plant's rules either. Like there's a whole group of bees called nectar robbing bees. And it's kind of a, a strategy that's spread across a lot of different species. But they, instead of going in the flower, for example, and you know picking up pollen as they crawl down to the to the nectar at the base, they crawl around the outside and they'll just cut a slit at the bottom of the flower and take the nectar at the bottom of it. So they completely bypass any of these fancy strategies flowers have evolved, and and they just cut right to the chase and uh, and cut what they need and leave. So smart. I don't think I would figure that out. I would be fully the bumbling bee that just like goes right into the middle and probably gets stuck. Okay, so I know you said that you don't like to pick a favorite, but can I please make you pick a favorite of your pollinator friends? Oh man, this is tough. Um, favorite pollinator, obviously bumblebee. Uh, there's no, there's no question about it. Among bumblebees, if I have to pick, then I need to give a special shout out to the polar bumblebee, Bombus polaris, is like. This bumblebee that lives in the Canadian Arctic, it's one of the biggest bees in, in North America. And it's like, I just find it so wild that like, you know, it lives in the, literally like in the Arctic Circle in parts and uh, it, it manages to like subsist and then thrive in like the short summer months of the of the winter. And so it's nice and big to keep all that heat and, uh, and maximize its kind of flying time in these cooler conditions. But then I have to like, you know, mentioning kind of big bees, the biggest fucking bee is the Patagonian bumblebee. And it is absolutely massive. They call it the flying mouse is another name they have for it. I think it can be up to like four centimeters, which is like huge for like anything. It would be big for a mouse, I think, <laughs> for like a bumblebee being that long. It is like just absolutely fucking insane. And it's this beautiful, the Patagonian bumblebee has this beautiful orange coat as well. It's absolutely adorable. First of all, I am looking at this bumblebee and it is adorable. <laughs> Like, it's so fluffy. I love it. So if we come back to climate change, and we get serious again. Based on current climate change projections, what does the outlook look like for our pollinators based on your work? Yeah, that's a great question. And it looks, you know, if we take kind of business as usual and just assume that we'll be continuing on that, then it looks pretty grim. One of the things I found in, in a recent paper that we published last year was that in a period of just over kind of 50 years from a baseline period to today, we were seeing declines by up to 40% on average across North America and Europe of finding a bumblebee. So it was, you know, kind of on average across all species, all across North America and Europe. If you were to go out somewhere and look for bees 50 or 60 years ago, and then went back to the same place today, you would find 40% less um, species. So it's a huge, you know, huge decline in, a, in such a short time too. So if we continue at that sort of rate, the outlook looks pretty grim. Other pollinators are suffering similarly from climate change and habitat loss and pesticides and other things. And so it can paint a pretty grim picture, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? We know in a lot of cases what we need to do to stop these threats. And we know what we need to do to recover populations. And so it's a depressing picture if we continue business as usual, but there's no need to continue at business as usual. There's a lot of things we can do to stop that. What are the parts about climate change and land use change that are impacting pollinators? It's a lot. It ends up being a lot of things, right? There's like with most 
biodiversity declines. It ends up being just a, a mix of a million different threats that are going on at the same time. For bumblebees, some of the things specifically are, of course, with habitat loss, you see destruction of, of habitat and of floral resources. So of both the flowers that they might collect nectar from, but also the places that they might go to create nests or to overwinter. So bumblebees, for example, and a lot of other wild bees in the winter, they find little holes, whether it's, you know, an old mouse hole or they burrow something or hide under a log or a piece of bark. Um, and they'll stay the winter there. And then in the spring, the queens kind of awake from hibernation or their dormant period, wake up and, and set up the whole colony again every year. So habitat loss can destroy those places as well, which is currently a big mystery of. In a lot of cases, we don't know where bees are, are going to overwinter at all. So land use change and habitat loss plays a role in that sort of way. For climate change, it's also a mix of things. We see that generally ranges are, are shrinking, and that's related to increasing temperatures in the southern parts of species range. So over the last, again, you know, 50 and 60 year period, as temperatures have been getting warmer with human-induced climate change, the range, if we look at where species are across the continent, that southern range limit is slowly, slowly moving further and further north. Um, and we look, when we look specifically at sites and what's happening there, we see that bumblebees are being pushed towards they're experiencing more and more often temperatures beyond anything they've had to in the past. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, one aspect of climate change, not only gradual warming, but more extreme events and more frequent and, and more severe extreme events. So that plays a big role in terms of pushing species over the edge of, of what they can tolerate and, and what they can handle. So they're dealing with the, the climate issues. They're dealing with the fact that they're, they're losing their habitat and we don't even necessarily know what that habitat is. That sounds like a really fun project to go around picking up leaf litter to find adorable little bees. It's it's so funny seeing like the, the things people do to look at this as well. Like I read a paper once and it was literally just, it was a short paper, but the whole paper was just, we were like having a picnic or we were doing something somewhere and we saw a bumblebee crawling out of some like leaf litter at the bottom of a tree. And we saw this like two other times while we were doing like that same sort of picnic. And so the whole paper was just explaining like, this is a novel observation of this bee that was overwintering and under this like specific type of tree and like doing that sort of thing. So it was like, it's wild. Like what that, that was new, that was completely new information and was like useful information. And other, other researchers, there's one researcher at, uh, at Queens who hired um, like dogs, like old retired police dogs to like sniff out bumblebee Queens to track down where their nests were. So it's incredibly like creative and, you know, the, the lengths people are going to to try to fill in this gap of information. So, Peter, you've, you've painted, you know, this pretty grim picture of our pollinators leaving the planet or their numbers being greatly reduced. But you did say that there are some things that we can do. So how can we manage this issue? How can we save our FFBs? Yeah, that's a another like big question, obviously, right? Like for things like climate change, like that's, you know, there's nothing you can do for climate change that's there are a lot of things you can do small, but like to address it in a concrete way, there needs to be big kind of systemic action. And so, you know, for almost any type of conservation, one of the best actions you can do to help save species is vote. Vote for uh, decision makers and, and politicians who care about environmental issues and care about biodiversity loss as well, care about making a stand on climate change. So that's, you know, a big, a big action as well. When it comes to more specific things on the ground, one of the really useful things and, and more individual things that you can do is making a pollinator garden. Um, it sounds small. It sounds like there's no way this has an impact, but 
urban, there's so much urban habitat and semi-urban habitat across the world. And if we start making it a little more habitable for bees, then this, you know, it creates oases of, of resources for pollinators, of, of nesting habitat for pollinators, and gives them also importantly, gives them like stepping stones of how to cross, you know, potentially hostile environments. They can almost jump from these little islands of pollinator gardens in some cases to help move in response to climate change or to move in response to, to other factors. So pollinator gardens can be a super useful thing. Um, they can also help bees shelter from extreme events when things get too hot, when things get, you know, too, uh, too crazy. You can create pollinator gardens in such a way that it, that it helps species not only get food, get resources, but, but also help shelter from climate change and other things. So let's say I build a pollinator garden on my patio. Should I be focusing on planting species that are local to me? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, local wildflowers are always the best thing. You know, the same. You want to plant the same thing that bees are going to see out in the wild near you as well. Um, so there's a lot of resources on online. Pollinator Partnerships has a great um, series of guides that are tailored to like, you know, every kind of eco region across North America that you might live in, and have a whole list of of potential flowers that you could plant in your pollinator garden. And garden centers are usually pretty great at knowing that as well. Um, the other thing you can do, which is, again, awesome for people who are less gardening inclined like me, you know, creating the best pollinator gardens involves mimicking natural habitat. Um, and so also just be lazy taking care of the garden. Done. <laughs> leave leaves in the fall, like, you know, fallen leaves, leave those on the ground, rake them into a corner, don't pick them up, sticks, leave them logs leave them <laughs> so you're telling me like do not clean m my very disgusting porch right now <laughs> i totally <laughs> condoned it's bad so peter we talked about you know individual actions that we can do or not do in yeah. kaylee's case <laughs> i'm gonna lean into not doing <laughs> you know the big thing that we can do of course is vote you know for governments that are going to enact some policies but what specifically do you think that governments should be doing because i always get the sense that governments they have no idea what to do. Like they would just put some blanket, you know, statements. We are going to do more for the environment. But, you know, from your standpoint as a conservation biologist, what would be some of the recommendations that you would make to a government that does want to make some change? Yeah, definitely. Let me start, like, I guess start at kind of a smaller, like a city level even of, of things that people can do there or that municipalities can do. One of the big things, and we saw this a little actually at the start of the pandemic last year, was some cities not mowing uh, road verges like the road shoulders where not the shoulder but like right beside it and so instead of it being just you know grass cut grass it blossomed into you know little shrubs tall grasses a lot of wildflowers um you know that's another like small thing of you know not doing something and now all of a sudden these verges can can turn into really great pollinator habitat a similar idea with kind of parks and, and the edges of parkways or other things so that's you know one example of a small thing there are a lot of really great scientists at in you know municipalities and provincial governments and federal governments, and a lot of them are already suggesting a lot of you know different things to do. I think, but of course, you know, putting aside area for pollinators, for biodiversity more broadly, setting aside protected areas, but that people can ideally interact with as well is um, you know a great idea to not only get people outside but also protect some of our species and provide uh, habitat for species. And then, you know, there's a whole suite of kind of sustainability things that, that cities can do as well, incentivizing public transport instead of, uh, you know, individual cars and, and driving, 
incentivizing things like bike lanes and walkability within cities. A lot of these things also cut down not only on carbon emissions and human footprint, but a lot of time can also go hand in hand with creating habitat for pollinators and and just kind of greener spaces in general. So you were talking about, you know, there's we're dealing with all this fragmented data and we're, it's incomplete. What to you is a big question that still remains in this field? I guess I'll mention two things. One that I already touched on, which was overwintering habitats for, for bumblebees and, and other pollinators as well. In a lot of the cases, we just don't know where they go for like three or four months of the year. They just kind of disappear. And there's all these funny stories of, you know, sometimes people finding them in old shoes or in pop cans that people have thrown on onto road verges and stuff. So sometimes there's like a huge breadth of places that species can go to overwinter, but others appear to have really specialized, you know, niches of where they want to go. And that's just a huge question mark. We have an idea sometimes for some species, we know it very well. Um, For a lot of species, we just have no idea. So that's one huge thing. The other one, I think is just like, what's where species have been, where they were in the past, where they are now. Like, Bees are not the easiest to look for. Some of them are everywhere. A lot of them are really difficult to find. Um, and so our knowledge of, of distributions and, and occurrences and where species are now, where they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago, this is very incomplete as well. And I think, you know, we can't go back in time and sample where they are, but in a lot of cases that data already exists. Um, and it's just in a museum somewhere, uh, in a drawer, in uh, in some researchers old lab book that they they have not brought out in in 10 years and so i think the digitization there's a huge push in a lot of museums and and science centers to digitize collection data Um, and i think that will will unveil a lot of new information that will help us better understand past to present trends and, and then allow us to predict into the future so peter you also have uh this program called backyard bio uh what's that all about yeah, that's a that's a program I'm I'm participating in, but it's organized by uh, Jesse Hildebrand and the folks at Exploring by the Sea of Your Pants. But it's a it's a super great event initiative. I don't know what they call it, phenomenon lifestyle. But uh, the idea of it is it's it's going to be a month long and uh, in the month of May, and just getting people to go outside into their backyards, survey the biodiversity there. I had a blast doing it last year. I went out within like just 20 minutes of my house in downtown literally in downtown Ottawa and found so many dope things from bees curled up inside of flowers to baby raccoons sleeping in trees. So it's crazy like what you can find just right in your own backyard, right around your house. And Backyard Bio is a super great way to get into doing that. Uh, should we get to some nerd herd questions? Yeah, let's head over to the nerd herd questions. Why is the sky What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? Is like carbon the fastest thing on earth? Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, we post them on our socials at Nerd Night YVR, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Our first one comes in from Amy, who asks, how much land do we actually need to preserve if a lot of land is going to be used, i.e. human development? Is there a sweet spot of urban development to pristine wild lands that is sustainable? Oh, wow. That's a really great question. And I'll say at the outset, I, I don't know the answer. I can speculate, I guess, you know, a lot of conservation biologists are throwing numbers here and there. They, some people suggested we need to keep 50% of the world wild. Other people have said less. Other people have said more. Everybody, you know, there are all sorts of numbers in between. 
I don't know the answer. I don't know if anybody really knows the answer. Um, but that's an awesome question. We should definitely maximize. Aim big because we'll probably be disappointed. Am I just really miserable? <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> so pessimistic. Okay, we have another question from Christine. And Christine asks, which places in the world are most affected right now by changes in climate and land use? And is is that predicted to change? Do we think that will change? Mm, yeah, another great question. So yeah, climate change is obviously a global phenomenon. And the difficult thing about it, or one of the reasons why it's so difficult in places like Canada to mount kind of sustained action against it is that the impacts of climate change are not spread evenly across the, the world. So a lot of countries, especially in, in tropical regions, are, are facing an outsized impact of, of climate change. In a lot of places, it's already been a, a transformative thing for the past couple of decades. And of course, you know, when it comes to extreme events, one of the things we're understanding more and more is how is this climate chaos, how climate change causes more unpredictability in weather, how it makes extreme weather events more common and, and worse. Um, and so things like monsoons, things like hurricanes, things like droughts and heat waves, all of these things are stretching out for longer or becoming worse. And so this is affecting places all across the United States, which is for, you know, a big, which is a big, uh, a big thing, but it has been affecting countries all across the world um, for, for a long time, longer than a lot of people probably realize. I guess one of the other things we often worry about is these like big, what we call state shifts that will reach a point where we reach a tipping point and you know, one of the big ones people mention a lot is the melting of the permafrost, or the moment where permafrost can no longer stay permafrost. Uh, and if that were to change, then all of a sudden we'd see a lot of impacts across the kind of boreal and, and subarctic regions, where um, that would that would change dramatically. All of a sudden we'd see a lot more impacts there. So, yeah, impacts will definitely change. Probably just keep getting worse, but might get worse in some places more than others. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I remember learning about permafrost in like a northern ecology course in undergrad and um, and being terrified that it had that much power over the, my future life. I love though, in just a just in a nerdy note way, the idea of I've seen like videos of people searching for fossils in the permafrost in like Siberia and elsewhere in the Arctic. And it's so wild to see them literally just dig through like layers of, of mud and like thousands of years as they pull out these like perfectly preserved you know items from the last ice age or before um, absolutely crazy place which comes uh, i've seen that twice actually in the last month uh, once in an x-files episode where uh they they find an alien uh stuck i should have known that that was where that was going but i i thought it was real life and also in transformers they uh they find a buried transformer in the ice as well so hopefully you know we, we keep looking we'll find something right our next question comes from Lisa. How do conservation biologists work with indigenous folks in regions they're studying in? Oh, that's another terrific question. And one that a lot of conservation biologists are grappling with at the moment. It's a, a huge, there's a huge reckoning right now across a lot of conservation organizations that for a long time, conservation has operated completely ignoring at best indigenous communities. Um, and that needs to change. Indigenous communities are have been great conservationists and protectors and stewards of, of the ecosystems that they live in for thousands of years. Now we're seeing a lot of, there's been a huge reckoning of that, a huge acknowledgement, I think, across most places, um, and a lot of steps being taken to correct that and work together, co-produce protected areas and, and management with indigenous communities. And that's awesome to see. A lot of great organizations like Wildlife Conservation Society Canada are, are doing that here. Um, and of course, more broadly across the world, it's 
it's been a really great push, I think. Um, but terrific question. Oh, man. Um, should we nerd out? I would love to nerd out. What you nerd about? What you nerd about? All right. If you want to get in on the nerd outs, we post them on our socials at Nerd Night YVR, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and you can even email us as well. We'd love to hear from you. We miss you all. Uh, our first one came in from Lindsay, who is nerding out about stromatolites and beginner snorkeling tips. Uh, Peter, how's your snorkel game these days in Ottawa? <laughs> it's like floating <laughs> through the Rito. <laughs> uh, wanting, I guess that would be that. <laughs> Kaylee, are you a snorkeler? Yeah, I am a snorkeler. I'm also a scuba diver when I can be. So pretty comfortable. Yeah, pretty comfortable in water for the most part. Are you doing it here? Like, or you just wait till you go to other more interesting waters? <laughs> Actually, I will have you know that the BC waters are incredibly interesting. And there's some amazing cold water diving uh, off the Sunshine Coast that I really want to go do. I guess what I meant to say uh, more interesting water is like not Kitts Beach. Correct. Though I did go for a walk, uh, not at Kits because bleh, in another area the other day. And I saw a seagull grab a crab out of the water and fly away with it. And it was magical. I had mixed feelings. I was like, <laughs> oh, the poor crab. But also like, oh, that seagull doesn't eat that crab. It's just going to eat garbage. So like, good for it. Peter, what have you been nerding out about recently? When Kaylee told me about this question, I had like thought about something last week. And I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to say this just so I have something. And then I had a meeting yesterday with um, Dr. Thomas Cullen at the Canadian Museum of Nature. He's a paleontologist. And he said something or introduced me to this like concept that just blew my mind. And, and since then I've been like steady, like just doing some furious Wikipedia researching and, and looking up some janky papers on it. But it was probably relatively simple, but it was just the, the idea that in the late Cretaceous period, obviously temperatures were much warmer. North America was covered in like tropical forests and then in the north was like warm temperate like probably similar to bc but it still went through the arctic still went through like four months five months of winter and i just thought it was like so wild to imagine it's one thing to imagine like the arctic being a warm temperate forest but it's another to imagine it still going through these cycles of like five months of sunlight and five months of, of darkness and just like thinking of how different the, the ecosystems would have been, how different like organisms would have had to adapt to that. I like it boggled my mind and I've been like puzzling on that ever since what that means. It's actually been coming up a lot recently with uh, some exobiologists um, thinking about planets, you know, that have really strange orbits, some that are um, tidally locked, you know, where they would get like 24 hour sunlight. And then on the other side, like they don't would not get any. And uh, they talk about how like along the Terminator would probably be where a lot. So the Terminator is like the line of the light in the dark. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for defining because I had one definition in my head for that <laughs> um and that along that line would be where the life would probably congregate because we'd sort of be able to cross over and get a little bit of both so it is really interesting well michael it sounds like you're already sort of nerding out about that uh is, is that is that your nerd out for today or uh what do you, what do you got 
Well, funnily enough, I have been nerding out about Star Trek. Funnily enough, there is a storyline in Star Trek Nemesis, which is one of the newer movies that did talk about a tidally locked planet. And there was a species that developed on the dark side and they never saw sunlight and they're just very kind of evil looking. (laughs) But the main thing that I've been nerding out about Star Trek is I realized that I actually haven't seen a lot of the original episodes. So I've seen a lot of the main ones. So there's a couple in the original series that are kind of seminal that you have to watch. They're just really good storylines, really good writing, really good like original sci-fi idea writing that's rooted in the heart of what Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, really wanted the show to be about. But there's also like these other really, really strange episodes that now I realize why they're kind of lost to time because this is a show that came out in the 60s and there's a lot of, you know, misogyny and there's a lot of ideas that at the at the time, you know, they probably thought that they were being kind of progressive, but like in today's context, they're like, mm, yeah, maybe not. But that also relates to, you know, what I've always said is one of my favorite and maybe even if I was to say the best character in fiction, which is Spock. Because when I was a kid, I always kind of looked to Spock as being like, this is what you want to like strive towards, you know, uh, stoic, the antithesis of Kirk, who's sort of brash, he's arrogant, you know, and even though Kirk, you know, tends to get uh, lots of success with the female species. That's not what you want to strive for. So what's interesting is Julia Galef, who's a host of a podcast called Rationally Speaking, is also really into Spock. She's even the co-founder of this Center for Applied Rationality. And Julia did a study recently where she went back through all of the scripts in Star Trek and analyzed every time Spock used the words probability, chance, definitely, probably, because that was something that was kind of rooted in who Spock was. Like he was very confident about certain things and he used his rational mind. But what she found was that he's actually has an awful track record at all of those things as written into the show. And (laughs) she describes it when he describes something as impossible, that it actually happened 83% of the time. (laughs) And quite often, if he said uh, something that he was 100% certain that something was going to happen, it was 100% certain that it was not going to happen. (laughs) Which is, you know, very interesting because obviously that's the way they wrote the character to be. But, you know, for me, this kind of creates a lot of like anxiety because this is the character that I was striving to be. So in in a book that she wrote called The Scout Mindset, she talks more about this and she talks about confidence. And she kind of breaks it down into two sets. One is epistemetic confidence, and that's how much certainty you have in your beliefs. So let's say, you know, I am, you know, 80% certain, Peter, that your findings are correct. You know, that would be epistemetic uh, beliefs. And then the other is social confidence. And that's, do you speak in a confident tone of voice? Do you go out and take charge and make things happen? Are you comfortable speaking in front of groups and putting your ideas out there? And she went and did like real life studies and showed that that actually helps you more. (laughs) And many of the people that are (laughs) successful in life now um, have that more social confidence as opposed to the more uh, epistemetic confidence. So I guess my nerd out is sort of like I'm now kind of in this really kind of gray zone because I don't know if like 
Spock, who I've been trying to strive towards my whole life, if I've been led astray, or maybe <laughs> slowly over time, I've I've accumulated some of the social confidence. I don't know. I'm I'm a bit confused right now. Well, who would the socially confident character be? Would that be Riker? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Kirk is would be socially confident. You know, he is not even like a the good captain, but he, <laughs> you know, inspires people to to follow him because he seems like he knows what he's doing. Thoroughly mediocre, but running the starship. Uh, Kaylee, have you uh, been having any existential crises right recently? What have you been nerding out about? So I've got a couple nerd outs. They're not related to existential crises, thankfully, right now. I've got two. They're very unrelated. The second one's my real nerd out. But I got it. I got to plug the first one. Today, I was awarded a Bio One Ambassador Award, which is pretty exciting. Ooh, thank you. Thank you. Nice. Uh, so the Bio One Ambassador Award uh, information just came out today. It's by Bio One Journals. And the reason I'm excited about it is because the award actually went towards science communication. So you were nominated by a journal in which you had published that year if you were an early career researcher. So within five years of a PhD, you're currently in grad school. And then you had to write 750 words about how your research changes the world. And I had so much fun writing it. Michael, you gave me feedback on it. So thank you very much. It's called Location, 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 (laughs) Rats, Real Estate and Public Health. And um, it's now up on the Bio One website. And yeah, I, I think I was just excited about it because it was an interesting science communication challenge. And I really appreciated that Bio One was awarding an effort to make the science interesting to a general audience. So um, there were five awardees, actually past guest David Schiffman, it turns out is another one of the awardees. I haven't read his piece yet. Um, and there's three other pieces and I'm very excited to read all of them. They're, they're pretty, uh, pretty in the biology realm. You can check that out if you're listening. But the thing I'm really excited about that I just realized is coming the other day is, uh, is related to basketball. So, okay. <laughs> I don't know anything about basketball. That's not anything against basketball. I know nothing about sports. They involve (laughs) balls. People pass them. Maybe it's a puck. Maybe it's a stone. I don't know. Sometimes you're on a horse. Whatever. (laughs) There are sports that exist. With a beer, I'm into it. Related to basketball, and and Peter, I know from your bio that you're into basketball, Space Jam is coming out. (laughs) Space Jam number two. And Space Jam number one is... One of my favorite movies of all time. It came out in 1996. I was 10 years old, uh, which was Michael Jordan meeting the Looney Tunes and going on an adventure uh, around basketball against the Monstars. (laughs) The soundtrack literally was the soundtrack of my life for about five years. (laughs) And so I just realized that there's a new soundtrack coming out for the new Space Jam 2. I don't know if they're bringing back Quad City DJs to do uh, the Space Jam song, but I hope that they are. Anyway, I am beyond excited for it. I'm going to switch my uh, nerd out hack because I'm also hyped about that. I've never seen Space Jam and I'm like, I think I need to watch it ASAP. What year did it come out? 1996. So you're, you're eight years older than me. So yeah. it's fair that maybe at 18, yeah. like you weren't into the Looney Tunes slash like Michael Jordan thing. I don't really forgive yeah. you for it because it is one of the greatest movies <laughs> of our time, but you should see it. Have you seen Space Jam? Peter? Oh my God! Yes. <laughs> so, okay. I also don't forgive you, Michael. I think it's a cult classic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, I'm gonna go find it right now, so we can stop having people be mad at me. Uh, anyway, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdin' About. If people want to learn more about you and your conservation biology work and your science communication work, uh, where can people go? 
Yeah, uh, you can check out my website, um, petersharier.com. Find me on, on Twitter at petersharier, Instagram uh, at puffypete. I try to share uh, try to share what's going on there at, at all those places. So uh, yeah, check it out. And thank you so much for having me. It was, uh, it was a blast being on here. This is a lot of fun. And everybody who's listening, you should definitely go follow Peter. Peter is amazing to follow, especially on Twitter, but also great on Instagram for great pictures of burbs. So thank you again for hanging out with us. This was a lot of fun. For everyone listening, if you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, explore your backyard and go find some FFBs. Bye.